and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Susan E. Provenzano, William M. Trumbull Professor of Practice at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, and Brian N. Larson, Associate Professor of Law at Texas A&M University School of Law. We will discuss their article, Civil Procedure as a Critical Discussion, which will be published in the Nevada Law Journal. So welcome to the to the podcast, Susan and Brian. Thanks. So uh, this is a really interesting article, especially for someone like myself, who is a former civil procedure professor. And I thought it was a really helpful way of of thinking about civil procedure from a kind of analytical perspective. But but for listeners who might not be that familiar with civil procedure or more particularly with the kinds of modes of argumentation analysis that you discuss in the article, I, I mean, I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about what kind of problem you are trying to solve or at least address in this article. What we noticed in you know our experience with civil procedure and our understanding of it is that the scholarship that's out there uh, talks a lot about how the rules do or do not accomplish their goal of achieving substantive justice, um, sharing information, putting parties on level playing fields. And there's a lot of scholarship out there about that, um, talking about the legal realist foundation for the rules, whether that foundation you know, is is a good one, whether it's being, you know, it's playing out. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's just a lot out there on that. So in other words, you can read a lot about civil procedure as a dispute resolution system and how it succeeds or fails. Um, but what we didn't see out there was, you know, how does civil procedure go about actually resolving disputes in a way that fits uh, with an argument theoretic foundation, right? Does civil procedure actually promote good argumentation and good resolution of differences of opinion. Um, And I think that's really valuable because although lawyers know how to make arguments based on procedural standards and substantive law, they may not really have a great sense of what constitutes sort of rational argumentation that um, can achieve what, you know, argumentation theory says argument should achieve, which is rational um, arguments with reasonable results. So in the paper, you focus on providing a kind of analytical framework for thinking about the structure of the rules of uh, federal rules of civil procedure, which I imagine a lot of listeners will be pretty familiar with. But perhaps in case that some of them aren't, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the federal rules of civil procedure are, what they were intended to accomplish, and sort of why they were adopted in the first place. So the, the civil the rules of civil procedure um, are in place for um, federal court litigation. So if you are in a court that is federal, um, you will have to follow those rules. If you're a lawyer, if you're a judge, and the rules really are designed to get parties, uh, the people who are litigating the case, to um, let each other know what your positions are, you know, what, what is the position that you're taking? What, what did this person do wrong to you? And what is your response to that? And to get that information out there in a way that, you know, is, is fair and promotes um, transparency, um, but at the same time is efficient and cost effective. And of course, there's lots of debates of, you know, how and to what extent the rules actually achieve that, but it's really a way of getting the parties 
to identify positions, share information, and allow the judge, of course, um, to make decisions along the way. And the ultimate goal really of the federal rules of civil procedure is um, substantive justice. And that's really different from the way that civil procedure used to work in, say, the olden days, by which I mean before 1930 uh, or 1938, as it were, more specifically. Um, Before these rules were in place, which are really designed to allow um, for judges to have lots of discretion and for parties to have a lot of um, flexibility in how they present their cases, the older systems were much more rigid. Um, And so there used to be rules that, you know, had you presenting the wrong that was done to you in an extremely technical way. And if you were harmed in a way that those sort of technical rules didn't recognize, um, even if, say, the substantive law would actually see that as a harm, if you weren't able to meet the technical requirements for fitting your wrong into a form, so to speak, um, you were going to be out of luck. And it didn't really matter how good your case was, how, you know, how how fair, unfair it was that, you know, you couldn't even get your day in court, so to speak. Uh, those systems um, had flaws like that. Uh, there was also another system um, before the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that was technical in a different way. Um, so what we're really talking about is the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure as being a response to the sort of rigid technicalities of two prior systems that existed before. Hmm. Well, so in the article... You introduce several different analytic models for sort of thinking about the structure of the federal rules and understanding how they work and why they work in that in that way. And and one of them is something you refer to as pragma dialectics. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is, what it's for, and why you think it's a useful way of thinking about the federal rules. So pragma dialectics is a model for studying argumentation that uh, comes out of a relatively recent European tradition, let's say the early 1980s or late 1970s. Um, It's sometimes called the Amsterdam School because the original proponents of the model were from the University of Amsterdam. And uh, pragma dialectics views argument as a dialogical or dialectical activity. So it assumes that there are going to be multiple parties involved. And that's a little bit different than some of the um, models for deductive reasoning that folks sometimes advocate as a model for legal reasoning. Um, So um, pragma dialectics views an argument as a, a critical discussion where a party puts forward a claim or standpoint and the other party sub- subjects it to some kind of critical evaluation. So this is uh, what pra- uh, pragma dialectics calls a verbal, um, social, and rational activity that's aimed at convincing a reasonable critic of the acceptability of the conclusion um, by putting forward propositions justifying or refuting the proposition. So it's um, it's a I guess, a form of, of thinking about reasoning um, and structuring the discussion so that um, certain kind of philosophical norms about what would be or should be reasonable are satisfied. And this is one of the things that we felt uh, was missing from the literature discussing civil procedure was that it was not discussing how uh, the structure of the rules functions to structure a critical discussion that should result in this um, you know, rational decision by a, a judge judging reasonably. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you suggest that pragma dialectics is useful for thinking about some aspects of 
of the federal rules, but maybe less useful or not useful for thinking about other aspects of those rules and how they work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when and why pragma dialectics is useful and when it isn't. Sure. I think at the um, at the big picture level, what pragma dialectics uh, concludes or assumes is that you're going to go through a series of stages whenever you engage in argumentation. Um, one of those is a confrontation stage where you the parties realize that they have some kind of difference of opinion. And then there's an opening stage where the parties establish what kind of common ground they have and where their differences of opinion lie. And then you have an opportunity for argumentation, which in a pragma dialectics model is a complex set of speech acts. Um, and then you have a concluding stage where um, the the standpoint that was put forward at the beginning is either accepted or it's withdrawn uh, and, the, and the parties move forward. Uh, in the uh, civil procedure context, the whole suit uh, fits that structure roughly, right? I mean, you have things like the uh, complaint and the answer um, that function to establish the confrontation between the parties and also establish some of the opening, uh, some of the things that they agree on and some of the things they don't. The admissions of the defendant, for instance, um, function to create some common ground, if there are any admissions, um, some common ground between the parties. Uh, and then you move ahead to um, the argumentation stage, uh, and then finally to some kind of concluding stage, which can be you know, a dismissal or summary judgment or judgment after trial. Uh, and what was different about uh, pragma dialectics and the civil procedure model is that pragma dialectics didn't envision, I don't think initially, it didn't envision the fact that these decisions, um, there are multiple um, subsidiary decisions that are happening along the way in a lawsuit. Uh, you have numerous procedural maneuvers like you know, motions to compel. Um, you have um, uh, situations where you're uh, introducing opportunities for the parties to establish new uh, opening levels of agreement. So for example, when you get to the pretrial, the proposed pretrial memorandum, um, the parties are actually proposing to the judge what matters have already been resolved and what re matters remain to be resolved at trial. Uh, and that establishes a new sort of baseline, and then the parties proceed to argue uh, based on that. So what we, what we felt we needed to do is we needed to have a, a broad picture uh, for the full suit, and then we needed to be able to drop into subsidiary arguments with their own confrontations, their own opening stages, their own argumentation, and their own conclusions for things like motion practice. Uh, and that's what our model does. Mm. Well, so as I understood the argument, you were sort of suggesting in the paper that pragma dialectics could, in a sense, be like supplemented by or complemented by kind of classical rhetorical theory or concepts. Is that the right understanding? And if so, could you talk a little bit about how that would work, like sort of what that theory looks like and why you think it's a useful way of sort of mapping pragma dialectics onto the way the federal rules of civil procedure actually work? So I, I think what pragma dialectics gives us is it gives us these stages of argument or the stage that a critical discussion stages that a critical discussion must go through. Um, and so that tells us sort of what the end goal or, you know, a, a, the objective of each stage is, you know, for example, confrontation, let's find out what the difference of opinion are opening. Uh, let's find out what the common ground is. Argumentation, let's you know put forth our positions and support them. Conclusion, let's resolve it. 
Um, what is missing there is it does not really give us the analytical content of the argumentation stage. Um, pragmodialectics, uh, as we talk about in the article, has kind of a different, very narrow focus in terms of assessing um, sort of nitty gritty, what is argumentation? Um, and what Stasis theory does is um, it actually fills that hole. The reason that Stasis theory fills the hole in a way that's useful for civil procedure is that Stasis theory is a kind of ancient civil procedure. Um, and it is so in a very loose manner in the sense that it tells um, or it, you know, theoretically told rhetors at the time um, okay, if you are litigating a case, um, and that's, of course, my modern terminology for what they did, uh, you're going to have these types of disagreements. There's basically three essential types of disagreements. You're going to disagree about facts, you're going to disagree about legal definitions, and you're going to disagree um, about sort of, uh, you know, what we think of as uh, when we try to defend our actions, you know, what are the kinds of things that would excuse our actions or justify our actions? And that was a third sort of big piece of disagreement that the Stasis theories, uh, theorists foresaw. And so that theory does map on really nicely to modern legal argument generally, um, but also to modern litigation, because of course, um, you know, modern litigation, we are disputing facts. I mean, we don't get to the ultimate fact disputes till much later in the case. Uh, but eventually, you know, if, if a case doesn't settle, the facts will be decided. What happened? Who did it? When? Um, also, civil procedure talks about um, legal definitions, right? A 12b6 motion, that's a motion to dismiss a complaint saying this complaint it says a lot of stuff, but what it's saying is not a violation of any law or not a violation of the law that you say is being violated. Well, that's the same thing as the Stasis theorist saying the definition of, you know, the, the definition of the act that you've performed is going to be debated as well. And then, of course, you know, in civil procedure, we have things like affirmative defenses, which uh, tee up disputes about, well, did your... Um, action actually, was it justified? Does it excuse you? Um, and so those very same debates are present in civil procedure. But what's really interesting about that, um, and those, sort of, those are the things parties are arguing throughout the case, but they're doing so in a phased way that is tied to a very specific procedural point. So all those arguments about facts, definitions, um, sort of justifications, et cetera, um, happen in one way at the beginning of the case, and then they happen in a very different way near the end of the case. But nonetheless, what Stasis theory does is it gives us that defined universe of you know, basic types of disputes that every single civil case will have, no matter what the substance of the law is. Mm -hmm. Well, so combining these two approaches, pragmatic dialectics and stasis theory, how does the combination of these two approaches help us diagram, as it were, uh, uh, cases under the federal rules? In other words, sort of what, what do you think the structure, the sort of argumentative structure of, of a case is under the federal rules based on these two, two different theories? Well, I think we um, one thing that we see is that pragma dialectics uh, confrontation and opening stages, uh, the places where um, uh, where the parties realize that they have a dispute and the place where the parties establish what their common ground is in a civil suit that's spread out um, over time. So we give an example of a, of a case in our uh, article uh, where the complaint is filed in 2011. 
Um, and so the filing of a complaint, of course, is a form of the confrontation. It, it alerts the defendant that there is a dispute between the defendant and the plaintiff. Um, but in that particular case, uh, the plaintiff filed an amended, amended complaint almost two years later, at least more than 18 months later, uh, introducing a new defendant into the case. Meanwhile, there had been a number of uh, procedural and other kinds of uh, motions and disputes between the parties. Um, so there's a, a sort of interleaving uh, that happens between the uh, confrontation stage in the suit uh, and the argumentation stage in the suit. These, each motion that happens in the suit functions as a separate little chunk of argumentation that resolves some question or issue uh, that's important for the progress of the suit. Uh, and um, so we we kind of map that out on a in a in a figure in the article, um, but the idea is that it it shows how the uh, different moves that the parties make in the suit function in different ways to advance it. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe you could talk more specifically about a particular case and kind of walk listeners through how you might use these tools to analyze the sort of structure of a case as filed and litigated. A case that we use as an example in our article is uh, Rivera against uh, Mendez and company. And this is a lawsuit filed in 2011 uh, by an artist, Dennis Mario Rivera, who is a Puerto Rican artist who had designed some promotional posters for the Puerto Rico Heineken Jazz Fest. And um, the organizer of the festival was Mendez and Compañía, and they ended up having a copyright dispute um, when they they hired someone else to do uh, later iterations of the art for the uh, festival, but they kept using some of Rivera's art, and he asserted that they had violated his copyrights doing so. So um, that case uh, represents uh, an example uh, in, in in the copyright space um, of what we're talking about. There's, we start with the complaint, uh, which functions as a confrontation uh, in the pragmatic dialectic model that alerts um, the defendant that there is a dispute between the plaintiff and the defendant. And the complaint also includes some factual claims that can start to function as the opening phase of the of the argument between them, because it's assertions that the plaintiff is making about the case that the rules require the defendant to respond to. Um, So the defendant could, in theory, simply answer uh, the plaintiff's complaint. Uh, But in this particular case, for example, the defendants started their uh, response by moving to dismiss some of the claims on grounds that they uh, failed to state a claim upon which relief could be granted. In other words, that he had had accused... um, the defendants of violating a couple of statutes, uh, which they claimed by the facts that he had pled in his complaint, um, they could not have violated. And so those parts of the complaint were dismissed. Um, so that that motion to dismiss triggers a separate um, fork, I guess you could say, in the argumentative structure of the suit, because the motion to, to dismiss from the defendants uh, functions to as a confrontation uh, with the plaintiff saying, hey, we have a disagreement here about whether even if the facts you've pled are true, we can be held accountable under these two statutes. Uh, and as a result, there was argumentation between the parties in the form of briefs. And at the end of that process, the judge issued an order um, that dismissed um, those statutory claims, leaving the plaintiff just with his his copyright claims. Um, and that at, it's only at, at that point that the defendants actually answer the original complaint, because now their answer relates only to the copyright complaint. Um, and so that sets the stage for um, 
subsequent uh, maneuvering, mostly procedural maneuvering. And every time a party uh, asks the court to make a decision, so uh, for example, a party might move to compel disclosure or discovery, I'm sorry, or a party might move to um, move for sanctions if the other party doesn't comply with the court's um, order uh, for discovery, uh, or the party might uh, simply move uh, to schedule a particular uh, meeting with the judge for a particular date or to reschedule it. Each of those things is a point where the judge has to make a decision. And each is its own self-contained uh, critical discussion, right? There's a confrontation. The opening is all the stuff that's happened in the case so far. There may be argumentation on both sides, although with some of these motions, the opposing party never actually files an opposing brief. And then there's a then there's a concluding stage where the judge makes some kind of decision, usually in the form of an order. Um, so that's uh, I guess that's an example of how it fits into the starting phase of a case. I don't know if you want more detail than that or not. Sure, I can. So I think what, what you've done, Brian, is is shown sort of how the prego dialectics critical discussion stages work with the lawsuit. So that's I mean, that's the first part of our model is you know how does a lawsuit actually track the critical discussion stages in this kind of um, in this phased way and recurring way. Um, but then I think what, what I can give some additional examples of is, you know, of course, there are four phases in a critical discussion. Um, and Brian talked about those and what they look like with the lawsuit. But the most critical one, you know, the most one that people are most interested in understanding better is the argumentation phase. Um, and that is where the classical stasis theory comes in. So I'll give you an example of how the classical stasis theory kind of informs how can we understand, you know, civil procedure argumentation. So again, stasis theory gives us like the disputes over facts, the disputes over definitions, and the disputes over quality. And that's like sort of the excuse justification. Um, and uh, each one of those um, can come up multiple times. Um, and each one of those can have their own dimensions, right? And what it comes down to, once we really dug into stasis theory and saw how that mapped out onto the argumentation phases of, you know, say, motions in civil procedure, we noticed that there were really, you know, sort of at bottom, three different types of arguments that, you know, are going to accompany the argumentation phase, no matter what motion you're making, no matter what, you know, substantive law you're dealing with. And you know, the first type is an empirical type of argument. Um, that seems really straightforward with facts, you know, did the facts happen? That's what trial is for. But empirical arguments can also be made about the law. Um, you know, do we have a legal source? Uh, what is the legal source and what does it say? You know, those are empirical observations. So uh, you might, for example, be arguing in a 12B6 motion to dismiss a complaint that doesn't state a claim on which relief can be granted. You might say empirically, there's no law out there that governs the harm you're talking about. So if you understand that empirical arguments are a thing, right, and in a sort of type of standard argument, your mind might think differently and, and sort of consider different options as a litigator or a judge. So that's empirical. And then we have um, conventional. And then conventional types of arguments really draw on rules of thumb um, to make sense of things. So with facts, um, standard rules of thumb and understanding facts are ways of making sense of motives or intent. A lot of times that's drawing inferences. A lot of times that's governed by evidentiary rules. You know, what do you make of somebody who does acts A, B, and C? How can we figure out what they intended, right? So, um, and then with respect to more pure legal arguments, 
um, conventional arguments really would deal with um, tools of construction. So let's say in that first example, you know, I think of this case, Haddle versus Garrison, which is in many civil procedure textbooks. Um, Haddle was a guy who used the federal civil rights laws to cover what was essentially a state retaliation claim, that he was fired for cooperating with the federal government um, in litigation against his employer. And so the first response that the defendant had to his complaint was an empirical one, um, which is to say this federal civil law It's out there, but it's not one that exists for the purpose of the kind of harm you're talking about. Um, The uh, defendant also made, and the plaintiff did too, conventional arguments about, well, how do you interpret this federal civil rights law? Um, How do we interpret the language? How do we understand um, the, the legislative motivation behind it? What are the canons of construction that apply? And there were arguments about that. Um, And then the final type of argument that, again, sort of flows through all argumentation stages in civil procedure is what we might think of as a value-based argument. So now we're not arguing about what exists or how to interpret what exists, but we're talking about sort of the underlying animating values for something. So in the Haddle versus Garrison case example, we might say, well, you know, the federal civil rights statute here was was adopted for a really different purpose. It was adopted to prevent um, people from uh, trying to retaliate against former slaves for exercising their new rights. It's not intended to help an at-will employee get his job back, you know, or get, you know, compensation for his job. And so that's the type of value-based argument. And that can come up, you know, in many different contexts over the, you know, over the life of a lawsuit. It can apply to arguments over pure law. It can apply to factual arguments, and it can apply to arguments that are sort of arguments of quality or, you know, the excuse or justification arguments. So that Haddle example is just a way of illustrating that when we're thinking about the argumentation phase of civil procedure, which recurs again and again in different forms and different stages, we can always think about um, the frames of empirical argument, conventional argument, and value-based argument. And that will help lawyers, we think, um, understand the options available to them um, in terms of the scope of argumentation and hopefully helps judges to judge more effectively as well. So one of the core problems in civil procedure or in in civil cases more generally is this law-fact distinction, you know, which can often be very difficult to make. Do you think that this model that you're proposing sheds any light on or is helpful in understanding the law fact distinction and how we ought to conceptualize it? Um, I, I'll start, but I think Sue's got some, uh, Sue's got another project where she's exploring this more deeply. So I, I'll start um by suggesting that one level of the uh, pragma dialectic model that's useful for thinking about this is the pragmatics part. So pragma dialectics gets its name from two fields. Dialectics, which if you think about class in classical terms, would be things like um, Aristotle's dialectic, which he describes in the um, uh, in the topics, in Aristotle's topics. Um, and uh, pragmatics is the study of how m- linguistic meaning works in actual living contexts. And so you have speech act theory from people like John Austin and John Searle and um, uh, H.P. Grice, for example. These are philosophers who talked about how language works, um, not just its semantic meaning, but how it works in the world. 
And so uh, pragmatics allows you to look at um, uh, verbal performances or utterances as having action qualities to them, right? So when you make an assertion, you're asserting that something is true. But when a judge finds for a defendant or a plaintiff, the judge is actually bringing into being the state of affairs that she describes in her order. By ordering it, she makes it come to pass. Um, so that's a different kind of speech act than an, uh, a speech act where uh, one of the plaintiffs, let, or let's say, just asserts that some state of affairs exists. And it allows us to examine the contents of pleadings uh, using a different kind of lens than we typically use. And I think that might be some of where the Sue's forthcoming work is going. Yes, thank you, Brian. I can build on that a little bit. Um, so my, my project that I'm working on right now does examine speech act theory as a means of trying to understand whether this law fact distinction, particularly in pleading, actually makes sense or actually holds up. Um, so, for example, two key speech types of speech acts um, that come into play here are a speech act of assertive or assertion, which is basically stating your position on something or stating that something is true or false, um, and declarations or declaratives, which um, really operate to take, you know, to change something, right? So when a court declares um that a, fa a fact has been found, that, not, that is not necessarily just an assertion of what actually happened out there, but that's a, a finding, right? That's a, a statement of that, that turns the fact into really more of a, has kind of legal force to it. And so the example that Brian and I like to toy around with is um, the omitted form in the rules of civil procedure that used to talk about, um, had sort of a form complaint um, talking about uh, the defendant drove negligently against me. And how, you know, these days we would see that as a pure legal conclusion. Uh, we would say, well, how, what does negligently mean? Does it mean you texted? Does it mean your blood alcohol level was high, et cetera? Um, so, you know, something, and, and that's more in the nature of a declaration, right? You're sort of not just saying a fact that existed, but you're trying to give legal significance to it. Um, what Iqbal in pleading seems to want people to do, however, is to only make assertions, uh, right? We, we don't want to, or, I mean, we obviously have to do more than make assertions, but the only thing that can be considered in deciding whether you state a claim for relief is your assertions. We're not going to consider your declarations of, you know, somebody drove negligently. But there's a problem with that because as Brian and I were discussing, um, over time, words that seem very factual or seem like assertions, such as inattentiveness, um, can, once adopted by a judge in a common law or precedential faction, uh, fashion, those words can become declarations, right? So for another example is the word discrimination. Um, if we look that up in the dictionary, there would be sort of a, a factual assertive way of thinking about that word. Uh, but it's also a word with very heavy legal meaning. And as law continues to develop, to develop more and more words um, sort of can potentially take on that sort of legal dimension and become more in the nature of declarations. And if that happens, then what Iqbal is asking for lawyers to do in avoiding that as much as possible, it becomes harder and harder potentially um, to plead in your complaint what it is that you need to do to avoid dismissal. So that's, I mean, that's right now just a working hypothesis, um, but it does sort of depend on, you know, how does speech act theory categorize different kinds of statements 
and what are judges and lawyers doing um, to sort of with those kinds of statements? And is that from a speech act theory perspective, are the way that judges and lawyers working with those statements, does that hold up? Um, so that's, I, if that's helpful, that's sort of the very preliminary idea of what I'm currently working on. Right, right. Well, so in closing, Sue and Brian, I, I mean, I kind of wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the kind of purpose of this paper and the theory it proposes. I mean, do, do you intend it as a descriptive account? of how litigation works under the federal rules, or does it also have a kind of more analytical or maybe even kind of normative perspective in the sense of suggesting that there might be some ways that we do things that are not as effective as they might be? In other words, is this a theory that can offer us tools for making civil litigation more efficient, more effective, better in some way? Yeah, I think that that it's it's funny because the last question you asked um, really uh, focused in on what the the sort of pragma part of pragma dialectics is a part of, is about. This one uh, actually focuses more on the dialectics part um, because one thing that makes argumentation theory generally, and I think pragma dialectics particularly um, interesting, is that it functions on both descriptive and normative levels, uh, and those two things interact. Uh, so from the perspective of an argumentation theorist, if I make an argument um, that uh, has a form that you don't reject, right, um, that argument is acceptable. If I make arguments of certain kinds, uh, they're typically going to be presumptively acceptable. So if I make a deductive argument, for instance, and it's not an incorrect deductive form, um, that's presumptively acceptable. Now, you might attack it on grounds that my premises are incorrect um, but you really can't attack the form of it. Um, and um, with deductive arguments, that's easy. Outside of the field of deduction, though, if we're talking about analogical arguments or other kinds of arguments that are commonly used in the law, um, whether an argument is acceptable or not depends on whether the culture in which it occurs accepts it. So the, the arguments that lawyers and judges find acceptable are the arguments that are rationally acceptable to the law. Um, so there's a there's a uh, there's an empirical aspect to this, and in fact, my my individual project that I'm now working on is an empirical study of how lawyers and judges are using case uh, court opinions in their arguments um, to to assess from a descriptive perspective what it is they're doing. And then Sue is looking at this, I think, from a, a normative pragmatic standpoint, saying, "Well, this is how we can distinguish between fact and law using speech act theory." And what argumentation theory does is bring those two things together. And it says, okay, well, given that this is our normative stance, and this is how uh, practitioners are actually doing this, um, and are presumably functioning in a rational system, right? I mean, we know there's emotions involved in the decision making, but our goal is to have a rational system. Then argumentation theory is the place where those two things come together. And we try to identify ways that we can satisfy our normative expectations about rationality um, and also conform them to what descriptively we see happening in the in the uh, environment. Maybe we need to change one or the other, right? Maybe we need to adapt our theories to the reality, but maybe we can persuade the practitioners to change their practices to be more consistent with the theory. But there's a give and take there that's not necessarily true in certain other kinds of um, 
uh, areas of research where normative and descriptive are more distinguished from each other. Well, thank you so much, Sue and Brian, for coming on the program. I really enjoyed having you and uh, congratulations on this excellent new article. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Got your word, and I've got mine, and it's a shame to grown up words that will never be the same. Storybook children. Yeah.